This morning we are continuing our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. Let's continue in verse 27 this morning. I'll read along, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. This is God's Word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the, go- of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that... From God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. We're listening and we're calling on you, Holy Spirit, to open not just our ears, but our hearts. So that we would see you, Jesus, this morning. We do believe that this is no natural occurrence, but this is a supernatural encounter with you. So Lord, do your work in this space. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastors like me like to advertise how difficult their job is, but if the truth be told, there are many, many benefits. And one of my favorite benefits of being a pastor is officiating weddings. And there's a part of the wedding when I'm officiating that I look forward to the most. It's right after the rings and the vows have been exchanged, and it's right before the pronouncement of the marriage. And it's the charge. It's the charge. It's the pastor charging, not really speaking to the people present, but speaking to the couple in front of them. And this charge, I like to think of it this way. This is the one thing I need to tell this couple before they go off and get married. This is the one thing. I have one last chance before they're officially married. What should I say? What is that one thing that I would say? I recently got a letter uh, from from the very first couple that I married. And they repeated the charge I gave them word for word. And this was years ago. And surely they didn't remember a thing that I told them in our premarital counseling. They probably didn't remember any of the wisdom that I imparted on them. But that one thing, at that one moment, they remembered every single word. I love this because it's so easy to forget the big pic- it's so easy to forget the big picture in marriage, but it's also true in our relationship with God. It's so easy in our Bible studies and in our involvements at church and as we're thinking through the different aspects of what it means to follow Jesus and wherever we are, when it's and we can lose the big picture, we can miss the one thing. We could all pray, God, simplify my mission. That would be a good prayer. God, simplify my mission. Paul felt like this small house church in the Roman colony of Philippi needed to hear a simple charge, a one thing.
And here he gives it. Look at verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word only could be translated one thing. Karl Barth in his commentary apparently says, picture the Apostle Paul holding up his finger and saying, this one thing, you all. This one thing. Paul's saying one thing, friends. Just one thing. And what is it? What is it? It's this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, in the Greek, it says this exercise your citizenship worthy of the gospel. Exercise your citizenship. The translators uh, want to translate exercise your citizenship as let your life be worthy of. Let your manner of life be worthy of. But some translations say this, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Sometimes in your Bible, as you're reading it, there is a footnote. And it's sometimes worth looking down at what the footnote is signaling. And if you look in our text, there is a footnote. Mine says, Greek, only behave as citizens worthy. How about yours? I like that translation. I like it better. I think it's helpful because remember, the city of Philippi is a Roman colony. Philippian citizens were Roman colonists. They were to live their lives as citizens of Rome, even though they didn't live in Rome. Does that make sense? They were called to live as citizens of Rome, even though they didn't live in Rome. As one scholar puts it, they were to be a mini Rome in Philippi, in Macedonia. Well, Paul is saying, take that, take that mindset that you already have as as a mini Rome and now apply it to your identity in Christ. In Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. You have privileges By virtue of your citizenship in heaven. You have a way of life that is unique to being a citizen in heaven. You are, yes, to be a mini heaven on earth. You are to live the gospel out in your community in such a way that you are, yes, a citizen of Rome, but also a citizen of heaven. And one takes precedence. And that's our gospel identity. What Paul is saying is, you are a gospel colony. We are all gospel citizens. And we are to live that out. And this verb, verse 27, which says, exercise your citizenship, which again is translated, let your manner of life. That verb is the controlling verb. The rest of this passage and even what follows is controlled by this one thing. And this morning, Paul is exposing, I think, three constant dangers that we will encounter if we are to be a gospel colony, a gospel 
culture. We don't just believe the gospel with our minds, but there's something about our life. There's something about the knowledge of our privileges. There's something about our king's word that changes the way that we live in Columbus, Ohio. We all have state IDs. Paul is saying, live your life as if your ID, your primary ID, is in heaven. What are those three dangers? Withdrawal, individualism, and sheer panic. Okay, And we're going to talk about these three things. We have just become Hope Presbyterian Church, and these are three things that we will encounter, probably have already encountered, but will definitely encounter as a new church. And Paul is going to name and expose these dangers and then remind us of how the gospel of Christ addresses each. So let's take withdrawal first. The first danger to a gospel colony, to to a gospel culture, is withdrawal. Paul says in verse 27, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy or live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. That you are standing firm. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But let's focus on that standing firm. Paul, when he planted this church and when he stayed with them in Philippi, brought action. He brought drama. If we were to look at Acts chapter 16, when this church is planted, we would see Paul... Uh, preaching the gospel and his, his, his posse behind him, preaching the gospel, people coming to faith, demons being exercised. They would be put into jail. There would be rioting against them. And then this jail would bust open. And then they'd be put uh, prisoners they, as prisoners who escaped. They would be brought before the council. And then the police would rush him out of town. There's all kinds of dramatic action, dramatic conversions, dramatic conflict with the culture that they lived in. And the temptation would be for them to just think, well, Paul is gone. Let's just hunker down and withdraw. We've had enough action. He's an apostle after all. We would expect it if he's around. But now that he's gone, let's just stay safe. And this entire passage, I think, assumes that the church is to be on mission and that it's a constant danger to withdraw. He says, whether I'm here or absent, stand firm. Paul assumes that the church is on mission, always open to attack. Stand firm. Whether I'm here or not, stand firm. He assumes that the church is on mission, constantly, therefore, in threat. Stand firm. You don't have to stand firm if you're withdrawn in your own little commune, do you? Stand firm, he says. I remember uh, playing team sports and I remember even working at a coffee shop. And in both cases, when the, when the coach or the manager of the coffee shop was gone, we would slack off. Do you know what I'm talking about? When the coach was gone, we would always think this is an easy practice day. That's what's going on in Philippi. The coach is gone. Paul is, Paul is not here. He's in prison. And Paul says, don't, no, don't stand firm. Stand firm with or without me. With or without me. Stand firm. Mission is for everybody. 
And Jesus calls us to stand firm on mission. So don't withdraw. Don't hide. Don't hide, guys. I think there's two ways, two impulses that we could hide as a church community. One is more conservative and bent. One is more progressive and bent. But at root, they're the same thing. They're withdrawal. The conservative withdrawal looks like complete disengagement from the city. Pulling apart and pulling away and hunkering down. But the progressive withdrawal is probably changing the bits of doctrine that is not palatable to our cultural moment, which changes decade to decade to decade to decade to century to century to century. In that case, are we not withdrawing by changing God's word? Paul says, stand firm, stand firm. We are going to follow Jesus, our king, wherever he leads us. We are to extend his welcome wherever he is extending his welcome with truth and grace. Andy Crouch, he defines vulnerability as exposure to meaningful risk. I think this text is calling us, Hope Presbyterian, to be a vulnerable church. That we would expose ourselves constantly to meaningful risk. That we would not hide from meaningful risk. We will expose ourselves to ridicule ridicule because of our gospel commitments. We will expose ourselves to rejection because the gospel says we are sinners in need of grace. B.J. Thompson says it well. He says, American Christianity calls its followers to be safe. Do you hear that? American Christianity calls its followers to be safe. But the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to give away our lives. Let's be a mission church. May hope have a gospel culture and therefore may we have a culture that does not withdraw, especially when it's scary. But we walk into our place of work. We walk into our neighbor's living room with the gospel. We don't play it safe. That's the first danger. The second danger is individualism. Paul challenges withdrawal with mission. Next, he challenges individualism with community. He says, stand firm. In verse 27. And he follows that with in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is an amazing declaration of community. I've not seen something like this. He says, he says, stand firm, but don't don't you dare stand firm by yourself. If we are to stand firm, we are to stand firm with unity, with community, unity in what the Holy Spirit, he says, One in spirit, which I take to mean the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit means I am closer to you than I am my own family of origin. Because I am united to Jesus, you are united to Jesus, you now are my primary family. And I have unity that is special, I have unity that is absolutely unique with you and all of God's people across the planet, across all time. The Christians suffering persecution... In Africa, I have more in common with them than I do my own primary family. 
because they are in Christ. Now, we may have family members in Christ. But the church is our primary family now. There's unity in the Holy Spirit. There's unity in attitude. The word for mind, as it says there in verse 27, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. The word for mind is the word used in other places for life or soul. There is a unity in attitude. There's also unity in action. He says striving side by side. That's an athletic term. That's an athletic term. We are like a team moving as one unit, as one person. And then finally, unity in the gospel. We don't just have any unity because people can unify over all kinds of things. We have a unity that is rooted in verse 27 at the very end, the faith of the gospel. They say if you want to watch football intelligently, who wants to do that? Anybody else? I do. I want to watch football intelligently. Uh, They say if you want to watch it intelligently, then keep your eye off the ball. You heard that before? Keep your eye off the ball. If you want to watch a football game, some of you watched this Ohio State game that happened yesterday. I heard about it. Um, actually, I watched it. Liverpool was on at the same time, but I watched it because, because love demands things from you sometimes. And my whole family was watching it. Now, listen, this was going on. And if you want to understand what's going on, if you want to follow the game in a deeper sense, keep your eye off the ball. What's your eye on then? The whole team moving as a unit. You're watching the the lines interacting. You're watching the receivers doing their thing. You're looking at formations. That's how you watch the game. The same is true of soccer, by the way. It is hard to watch soccer on TV because for whatever reason, the camera people just zoom in on the person with the ball. And I will tell you, part of the joy of watching soccer is seeing the whole field all at once. Because you watch this sort of moving organism of players doing their thing together. It's a together striving. And that's the word that Paul is using to describe the church. The church, the gospel colony, is a together striving. It's not golf. When you watch golf, you see an individual striving. But when you watch football or when you watch soccer or choose your team sport, you're seeing a together striving. That doesn't erase individual effort. That doesn't erase individual uniqueness. But we become most alive when we see ourselves as part of a greater community. I think the greatest lie of late modern thought, of late modern living, which we all live in right now, And it's been called expressive individualism. What that means, because that's a big mouthful, I know, is that we are defined in isolation. You are most defined in isolation as an individual and through the expression of that individuality. It's expressive individualism. You are most alive when you're thinking of yourself individually and as expressing your individuality. Think of ways that you might be living out of that cultural narrative instead of the narrative of scriptures. This is a really, really exposing exercise. An expressive individualist church. 
will not lean on others in need. But a gospel culture will lean hard on others. An expressive individualist church will not challenge or encourage other people. But a gospel culture will let, uh, will get to know others in real ways. And by knowing them, will be able to say a good word in season to them and encourage them in a way that actually meets them. Or a challenge that actually meets them in a loving, gentle way. Regardless, we can't do that if we're doing life alone. And trust me, we can be in a community like this and be alone. An expressive individualist church would be united by identity politics. And not Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Think about it. What you have in America right now are churches that share similar politics. And they have unity on political viewpoints. What we have right now in America are churches who look the same. And so have unity in cultural identity. Or racial identity. What we have in America is we have churches who are a community of sorts. But I wonder if it's the kind of community that Paul describes. Because a gospel culture that Paul describes looks very different. Because we have a unity in the gospel. We have a unity in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Which means we will look different. Which means we will have different political viewpoints in this room. An expressive individual's church will share the gospel through individual witness. But a gospel culture will share the gospel as a community. Think about this. Leslie Newbegin asked this question decades ago. He said, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? Now, those are what our friends and family are asking right now. How is it possible that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit? First of all. Second of all, that he sent his son and his power was made evident by dying on a cross. Third of all, he was raised from the dead. How is that gospel going to be credible to our neighbor? His answer, I am suggesting that the only answer is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. It is a community evangelism. If we are shaped by the gospel that has saved us and rescued us, there is something about that that rings true with others. And that's what Paul's calling us to. He's calling us away from individualism and towards community. One final thing here, and that's panic. Panic. Paul challenges withdrawal with mission. He challenges individualism with community, and now he'll challenge panic with assurance. Starting in verse 28. So we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign or signal or 
or omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you or gifted to you from God that for the sake of Christ, you should not only have faith in him and believe in him. So faith is a gift, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict or agony that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's challenging the impulse and the danger of panic. A gospel culture will be tempted to withdraw. A gospel culture will be tempted to just go it alone. And finally, a gospel culture will be tempted to just have sheer panic. The word for frightened in verse 28 is used in the ancient world to describe a horse stampede. A horse stampede. Paul wouldn't write this if he did not know that this was happening. He would not say, do not be frightened unless the Philippian church was stampeding in fear and in panic. When you are on mission, you have opponents. Who these opponents are in verse 28, we don't really know. We're not totally sure. But in chapter 3, we'll get to that after Advent. In chapter 3, we see internal opponents who oppose salvation by grace alone. But remember, if you back up to Acts 16, you saw opponents outside of the church that were trying to oppose God's people. Either way, gospel cultures will always have opponents. Paul says, don't panic. How could he say that? Well, he gives us assurance. So Paul knows the only way that the church, the only way that we church can stay calm is with assurance from God. There's three assuring truths in this little section. The first is the assurance of salvation. Paul says that the gospel, that gospel faithfulness lived out as a community will be a sign, an omen or a preview of our eternal salvation. And there our opponents eternal damnation. Judgment. That's in verse 28. And he he finishes that statement by saying, and that from God. And that from God. And that from God. Our salvation, our standing firm in the faith is from God. Paul is assuring a scared congregation about the sovereignty of God and our salvation. We like to use the sovereignty of God in theological debates. Paul always uses the sovereignty of God to comfort people who are freaking out. He's saying, and that from God. Those four words are the most important four words that you could say when you are panicking. And that, fill in the blank, whatever that is, from God. God is in complete control. He's completely sovereign. And He gives you assurance of your salvation. Everything, including the hardship that comes from opponents, is Given to assure you of your salvation in God. That's the first thing. The second thing is assurance in the midst of suffering. Paul gives a teaching on suffering that goes against all of our natural thinking. In verse 29. It's been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now have. Three things can be drawn from this counterintuitive teaching on suffering. 
that I find actually hopeful. If you're in a hard spot, I find this hopeful. First thing to know is that suffering is not a curse. You know, we interpret suffering as a curse. Paul says, it is granted to you with your faith. It is actually an assurance, not a curse. The second counterintuitive truth, I think, that we see in this teaching is that suffering is not pointless. We think suffering is pointless. We think years of suffering is wasted years, years that we'll never get back. We think a life that we know now will be marked by suffering, post-traumatic stress, victims of abuse. We think a life that, is, that will be marked by suffering from here on out will be a pointless life. God is saying, suffering is not the way it's supposed to be, first of all. But somehow, second of all, God promises us that when we suffer... We suffer in and through and for Jesus. That's not a pointless suffering. Doesn't answer every question about suffering. But the third thing here is that suffering is not isolated. Christians don't suffer alone. Paul says that the church is engaged in the same conflict that he is experiencing. He's not saying a similar conflict. He's saying the same agony that I'm experiencing in prison. The same agony that I have experienced as a, as a church planter. That very same agony. That is the agony you're experiencing. We are, in other words, united in that agony. And Paul could say that because he said that we were united in the sufferings of Jesus. We were, in a way, we are in Christ in both His cross and His crown. In all of this, Paul is addressing a church stampede. A church panic. With assurance. I took equestrian class in college. Can you believe that? I took equestrian class in college. <laughs> it was harder than I thought it'd be, first of all. <laughs> and I don't remember much about it. And if you asked me to ride a horse today, I wouldn't be able to do it. But when I learned that the word that Paul is using to describe what happens to a church when they're opposed is a stampede, a horse stampede, I thought, man, that is interesting. That is one good image for what is happening in our culture right now. American Christianity has had it so good. And the first sort of hint of opposition, we're stampeding, we're freaking out. Like we forgot the gospel. Like we forgot that to follow Jesus is a claim on all of our life, including our comfort. And we're just throwing it all away. Because we're in love with power. We're throwing it all away because we're in love with comfort. We're isolating and we're withdrawing and we're losing our mission. Just because we're afraid that people are going to talk bad about us or oh, litigate against us. We might not have a tax exempt status. So let's just pitch it. And let's hunker down, everybody. No. We're the church. And Jesus is our pastor. We do not stampede. So I studied, what do you, what do, you do Like when a horse is ready to, to stampede? Does anybody know? 
How do you assure a horse? It's, it's panicking. Well, I went online, and there are horse magazines out there, and I learned this. I learned that the way you calm down a horse, a spooked horse, is by taking advantage of their single-mindedness. Whatever is spooking them, they are only thinking about that. And so a good rider of a spooked horse will take that and leverage that so that they would have their single-mindedness focused not on what's spooking them, but focused on the non-anxious rider. Get the horse to think on you and not what's spooking them. And so you do little things to remind the horse of your non-anxious presence. I feel like that's what Paul is doing. I feel like that's what God is doing to us this morning. He's saying there's a way bigger picture than what is freaking you out right now. Whatever that is. You're a Christian. You're in middle school. And now it's go time. People are asking you to do some things you're uncomfortable with. And it's scary to just say, ah, I follow Jesus. He says not to do that. That's a scary thing to do. And it doesn't change, does it, grown-ups? As you walk into your place of work, as you walk into Thanksgiving dinner, even, you're afraid. You have panic. God is saying, There is a non-anxious presence in the room. It's God. Put your single-mindedness on whatever's freaking you out on Him. There's an image in Revelation 4 that, that I just love. John in Revelation 4 gives us a glimpse into the throne room of God. I'll just quote some of it. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So this, I just imagine the throne room being this just God's glory, just like peals of thunder and lightning. And before the throne, listen to this detail. There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And when I panic, I think of that image. Do you know why? Because before the very throne of God is a sea of glass. Everything is calm. Everything is in control. Everything is like a perfect sea of glass. If my life is this absolute mess of a, of a storm and a tsunami, and God's throne room is perfect calm, He is not surprised by whatever it is that's making you panic. And that brings me down. And so say these four words with me in your panic. And that from God. And let that bring you down. And that from God. Many of us visited our family uh, this week. And we got to see, for better or worse, on full HD display, our family traits. That we now carry into our own families and marriages. And into our own church life. And into our own place of work. And into our own friendships. We see our family DNA on full display. We don't like it sometimes. Sometimes we're like, hey, this is great. I like my family. I'm glad I'm like this. Sometimes we're like, in that part I don't like about me. And I'm seeing it more and more as I get older. I don't like it. This is my family traits. Our family system. Paul is simply saying, this is your primary family now. This is your primary family. And you are being reparented 
in the family of God. And these now are your traits. You aren't withdrawing. You aren't by yourself. And you are not panicking because of the grace of God in Christ. What's Paul's one thing? Be a gospel colony in Columbus. Be a gospel culture. Organize all of your life around the gospel. Organize all of your life around the privileges that you now have as a gospel colonist. Organize all of your life. That means the gospel is not just how we enter into the kingdom of God. It's also how we live in the kingdom of God. God who saves us in Christ keeps us in Christ to the very end. And when we fail, when we panic, when we withdraw, when we go it alone, when we cut ourselves off from community, what does God do? He points us week in and week out to His Son, Jesus. His Son, Jesus, who did not panic in the face of opposition, but trusted His Father with perfect submission. Not my will, but yours. He points us to Jesus who does not withdraw, but who walks into a hostile world, saving, yes, even his enemies. He points us to Jesus who fulfilled all of this perfectly and also died for all the ways that we fail miserably. And he says, you are now a culture, a community, based upon that Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this text and for the charter that it gives our church. This first week, as a particularized church, we have a charter. We have a calling. We have a one thing. We have a charge from the Apostle Paul. And it's to not just believe the gospel for entrance, but to live the gospel as a culture, as a community. So may we never withdraw. May we never panic. May we never isolate ourselves. But would we, in Christ, trust Him? And it's in His name we pray. Amen.